This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Police Services Board met yesterday. That's always a controversial issue here in ha- issue in Hamilton for a number of reasons, especially one of the items on the agenda that we had highlighted, and that, of course, is this idea of carding. And uh, the chairman of the Police Services Board, Lloyd Ferguson, and others had opined that uh, there's a, a obviously an increase in the number of shootings and gunplay here in the city. And they're wondering if it's because of the number, the lack of number, really, of uh, carding incidents. Uh, police have, well, uh, I'll give you the numbers in a second, but those numbers have gone down considerably because of all the, car- the, 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 the conflicting evidence that's going on about carding and how effective it is. Susan Claremont, award-winning crime writer for the Hamilton Spectator, uh, joins us. She wrote about it in the spec today, and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Susan, how are you doing this morning? Good morning, Bill. That's, this is a, a rather interesting uh, issue, somebody trying to connect the dots here. Uh, and, and the story we got from police, uh, and as you watched this yesterday, I, I, I thought it was rather a, a bland answer. In other words, we don't have enough information yet. Uh, we're trying to get some information. There's a lot of concerned people in this community about, about these two statistics and wondering if there is a correlation. True, but to be fair to Hamilton Police Service, I think they are working with um, very few numbers, very few hard statistics. It's only been a year since the new legislation came in, and so they have one year of, of statistics, and they only have five incidents of collection of identifying information, which is the proper term for what we used to call carding. And by the way, you put uh, that clarity in in your piece today, which I thought was rather instructive, uh, because we use that phrase, carding, and and, uh, the the police representative, I guess it was Superintendent uh, Good Richie that was there yesterday, said that's that's just not carding. Uh, They they were pretty insistent that that it's an apples and oranges comparison. They are, and you know, that just adds to the complexity of this whole issue. Um, Just trying to understand what we're all talking about, what these terms mean, how data is being collected. Um, I find it very confusing. So, um, you know, trying to have an informed opinion on it is difficult. And again, because I think a lot of us have used and maybe misused that phrase of carding, and it seemed to be a blanket phrase to any time that a police officer would have an interaction with a member of the public, uh, the accusation was, well, they're carding that individual. And, and the police were quite insistent that that's not really what happens. Right. What police are saying is that a, an officer can have a random interaction with any member of the public, and um, and, and that's perfectly fine to do so. It's when they get to a point in the conversation with the police officers asking for identifying information, that's when it turns into this collection of identifying information legislation, which they call COI for short. But you you made a very clear distinction, and I think it's an important distinction with that statistic you just talked about, Susan. Because uh, when you use the comparison five years ago, Hamilton officers, and you put it in quotation marks, carded 4,800 times. Last year they did it only five uh, we don't know of those 4,800 how many of those were just conversations, how many of them were actually taking down information. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a blurred line here. Again, yeah, you're right, Bill. It's, it's difficult to understand what we're talking about. And, you know, perhaps the part that I found most confusing was um, I asked um, uh, Superintendent Goods Ritchie and Acting Chief Dan Kinsella at the, at the end of yesterday's meeting, um, whether officers are still stopping and, and having random conversations with 4,800 people, but 
have only asked for identifying information in five of those cases. And I was told that officers are still talking to lots and lots of people, maybe thousands of people. But when I took it a step further and asked, how do we know that? Do we keep track of that? Are there statistics around that? Um, I was told that they simply know. Anecdotally, they know that it's, it's business as usual as far as that's concerned. And I'm not sure if that's the case. Yeah, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't buy that. I, I, well, I wonder if police officers, uh, if there has been a chill effect, if the legislation is causing police officers to stop and, and think twice before uh, having a conversation with a, a random member of the public. I don't know that they are or they aren't, but I wonder about that. And there doesn't seem to be be any way of tracking whether that's been affected or not. Well, I'm trying to connect this with a story that was out earlier this week, and it was out of a University of New Brunswick study, so it was it was on a national basis. But it talked about the fact that because of the pushback that was going on about carding and interaction and, and <laughs> tension sometimes between the public and police services, that uh, they say that the survey that they did, a uh, number of officers right across the country said they're now reticent to get involved in, and actually have any contact with citizens. And to that end, on the program earlier this week, I had Clint Twolin on, of course, from the Hamilton Police Services. Right. And he says that's exactly what he hears from his membership, is that they're thinking, well, you know, and they're thinking, you know what, if I say the wrong thing, I'm going to be accused of something. And, you know... It's, he says, oh, he, and he was quite clear, he says, don't get wrong, we're not turning our backs on potential crime scenes, but but they're they're very, very nervous, he's telling me, that, that, that if there's going to be a pushback on this. And uh, we've seen examples of that right now. Right. And anecdotally, I'm hearing the same thing from, from some frontline officers. I mean, you know, given the choice between <clears throat> driving on or stopping, engaging, doing paperwork, risking, you know, uh, I hear things about risking being caught on video, um, winding up on YouTube, you know, all, all those things um, that some police officers are, are choosing the easier route, which is to carry on and not stop. Um, so, I don't know what's really happening, but I was disappointed to learn that there's no way of evaluating that piece of this. Police file reports at the end of a shift, though, Susan, and do they include that information that I I, I, I talked to 45 people in my shift or 10 people or whatever it was? I'd, uh, from, from what uh, Acting Chief Kinsella was saying, they don't really track that. They don't even categorize or catalog that. So how would they have a, any idea of ever gathering information about that? Exactly. Um, you know, I'm sure lots of officers talk to lots of people every day. Um, how that's tracked, I'm, I'm not sure. But I, I doubt that every interaction with the public winds up in a report somewhere. So maybe police are talking to, to the public as often as they were five years ago before the COI legislation came in. But maybe they're not. And it would be nice. I mean, one of the, the Things I've written about several times in the past about the legislation or carding, as we called it in the past, is that there are very few um, empirical studies that have been done on this. I mean, you mentioned one today, and, and perhaps we're going to see more, some more going forward. But there is a serious lack of, of academic studies um, by criminologists, by statisticians, uh, about the correlation between 
carding or coy legislation and crime in our communities. And, and that's sort of where Lloyd Ferguson was taking this at the meeting yesterday. It, he was asking the question, can the rise in gun incidents in Hamilton, the rise of shootings in Hamilton over the last couple of years, be in any way connected to coy legislation? And the answer is, we simply don't know. But there is a rise in gunplay here. I mean, that's a, that's a fact. I mean, the numbers are there, right? Well, that's true. I mean, I think the last time I was on your show talking to you, we were talking about the shooting incident, uh, the bizarre shooting incident in Ancaster yep. a week or so ago, in which um, OPP and somebody uh, were engaged in a situation where shots were fired. We still, to this day, don't know who fired the shots, whether it was bad guys, whether it was uh, OPP officers. But, you know, we've already had three uh, shooting incidents uh, in Hamilton already this year. And, you know, there was a time when that would be for an entire year, three three um, counts of shots fired. So there is something going on, and that might be a very complex issue, too. It might be a combination of things. It might be coy legislation. I mean, it might be you just look south of the border. I mean, you look to Florida. You look at the number of guns that are in the country right beside us. Maybe that has something to do with why we're seeing more guns and, and more shots being fired in Hamilton. And and the statements we got from police, as you reported in your piece today, Susan, are, are really variations on the same theme of what they've been saying for the last two or three years, that, that a lot of these are drug-related incidents, that uh, they could be gang-related, uh, which is cold comfort to you and me as members of the public, because you can be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and, and who knows what could happen in situations. And when, when they start firing guns like that, I, you know, to go back to your Ancaster example, we don't know who shot where. You don't know where the guns were aimed. You don't know where the bullets ended up. We had that incident a couple of years ago downtown at Maine and Victoria on a Sunday morning where there was gunplay right in the middle of the street. You don't know what's happening. So there is a concern by the public, and I think a legitimate concern. Absolutely. And uh, to that point, uh, Acting Chief Kinsella did acknowledge that. He, he said that, that the vast majority of gun incidents are targeted but that's not going to help you if you're in the way of a stray bullet. And the the public, I think, is concerned. Lloyd Ferguson says he's hearing about that from, um, from people in the community. I know I hear about it from people in the community. You do, too, I'm sure. sure. Yep. Um, you know, and uh, Dan Kinsella and I spoke again about the episode in Ancaster a week or so ago. And he said there were lots of witnesses to what happened. There were lots of, of members of the public filling up their, their cars with gas and going about their business when those shots were fired. And that is a very scary thing. Well, at any given day, uh, there's somebody there behind the counter. There are two people usually working at the Tim Hortons kiosk that are there. And, and as you say, it's a very busy gas station. So. Somebody knows something, and then uh, the fact that we haven't heard any more information about that I find astounding. But you, 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 in the piece today, Susan, you're actually talking about two different things. There's that element here that Councillor Ferguson's talking about. Is there a correlation between the gunplay and, and now the COI legislation? But what I'm sensing when I see the comments uh, from the administration, the police administration, and then subsequent comments from, from people like Clint Clolin and, and some of the frontline officers I've talked to anecdotally, 
I'm, I'm starting to worry about a disconnect between the frontline officers and administration on a subject like this. Well, I, I think there are politics involved with this. As we know, um, carding has been a, an incredibly controversial issue, and rightfully so. Uh, if um, visible minorities are being stopped by police in a, in a disproportionate uh, manner to the rest of the public, that's a huge concern and something that I have serious, serious trouble with. And I, I'm sure many police officers have serious trouble with. But what I am hearing from frontline police officers is that um, they feel that they can't speak to the public the way they once did. And they feel that bad guys are taking advantage of that. And, and therein lies the problem. In other words, what we're hearing from the administration, I don't mean this is a personal slight against uh, Acting Chief Kinsella or, or, or Chief Gurr, anybody for that matter, they're saying what they're supposed to say. Uh, and, you know, and I, I don't want to go into the phrase of political correctness here, but they're saying all the right things and all the proper things vis-a-vis the legislation. But I'm, I'm hearing a different story from the frontline officers that are saying, yeah, this does have an impact on the way we do our jobs. And, and that's, that's something I think needs to be discussed. Well, it needs to be discussed, but I think more importantly, it needs to be studied. You know, we need hard facts. You and I keep saying we've heard anecdotally, and and right now that's all we have, but that's not good enough. We need hard facts. And and I guess that's why, you know, on one hand, um, Hamilton Police Administration is is saying that they're only going to stick to the hard facts and, you know, coy is different from carding and but then when they're asked are police talking to fewer people then suddenly it's okay to talk anecdotally and they say oh sure they're they are they're doing their job same as as ever i can't prove it to you but you need to just trust me on it um based on anecdotal evidence so you can't have it both ways we need to have cold, hard facts, and, and I would hope that Hamilton Police finds a way, although, uh, God forbid, I, I hate to impose more paperwork on a police <laughs> officer because I know they have so much of it already, mm-hmm. but how do we know how many people they are talking to um, as they go about their duties every day? Well, exactly, and and I would have been a little more reassured by this if they had said, you know, we don't have enough data yet, we need more time. Uh, if they had maybe explained how they attempt to, to gather that data. So at some point in the future, they will have more definitive statistics that they could actually bring to this conversation. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, that, that wasn't suggested yesterday, that's for sure. But, uh, you know, perhaps um, with with discussions with people like Clint Tulin, who is representing the members of the police service, um, they can... Uh, do more to, to get a better, full understanding of the big picture of what's going on here. Because frontline officers appear to have serious concerns about the impact that the new legislation is having on their ability to do their job. And if that's the case, then we need to have a different discussion. But first of all, we need to understand what's actually going on. Exactly. Thought-provoking piece in the spec today. Check it out. Not enough data to draw a link between carding law and Hamilton shootings. Award-winning columnist Susan Claremont. Always a pleasure, Susan. Thanks so much for this. Thanks for having me, Bill. Take care now.
You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, just when you think things can't get more bizarre in the Patrick Brown story, uh, comes the revelation yesterday uh, during the interview, the exclusive interview he gave to Global TV, that, uh, well, he hasn't actually resigned. At least that's his story. Uh, He says during that very crazy night where the allegations became public and there were two hastily called news conferences, that uh, Brown said he wanted to stay on and fight these things and staff let him go and do his thing. And first of all, (laughs) while he was making the announcement that he was going to try to stay on, his staff resigned en masse as key staff members. Uh, And then apparently one of the staff members wrote the resignation and publicized it without Brown's permission. So he says that technically he may still be the leader of the party. That's an interesting twist on this. Meanwhile, <laughs> the uh, other candidates that uh, think that there is a leadership race going on had their first debate yesterday to uh, try to get some clarity on all this stuff that's going on. We're pleased to welcome back to the program Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. How are you doing this morning, Barry? Good morning, Bill. You know, you can't write this stuff. If I, if I put a, a screenplay together like this and said, here, this is the next episode for House of Cards, they say, no, it's, it's unrealistic. It's never going to happen. This is weird stuff that's going on. Yeah, Except we're seeing it mirror what's going on south of the border as well. Yeah, yeah, these these are crazy times for sure. Uh, look, um, Brown's protestations, notwithstanding, uh, apart from the issue of whether or not he is guilty of the things he's charged, he has not handled himself well in a position of responsibility. And the, I think the most damning uh, thing about his that night of the resignation, quote unquote, was uh, the the way he handled himself in front of the media. People in positions of leadership have to show some some degree of of of, of, of temper and a uh, bite temper in a positive way uh, of self control. Uh, and that this is somebody who just is really a loose cannon. It was perhaps hidden from the public for a long period of time, but I think he has shown more than enough evidence for the fact uh, for why he shouldn't be leading the Conservative Party and uh, whatever <laughs> what. Uh, he, he may have gotten into an alternate reality, not unlike the President of the United States, where he sort of believes his own facts, but uh, effectively he is not the leader of the Conservative Party, and I suspect what we're going to be talking about in a few minutes is going to be about who, who's going to replace him, not whether or not he's really the, still the legitimate leader. One of the other statements he made during the interview on Global TV last night was that he thought that this, uh, his removal, shall we say, was a quote-unquote inside job, members of his own party. And uh, You just realize that now? I mean, that seemed blatantly obvious to an awful lot of us within hours of this whole thing happening. I mean, uh, Vic Fidelli and some of the other folks, I mean, they literally stepped over the body before it was cold and said, hey, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready to take the leadership. If he, if he had had his act together, he would have handled himself differently at the time. I mean, this we're now, what, three weeks or so after, uh, since maybe more than that, since, uh, since the events of, of that night. This is somebody who should, in hindsight, never have been leader. Uh, he was able to use the uh, the rules about organizing and signing up members sufficiently to uh, to win the the win the nomination. Um, but that's even under question now. Uh, everything's under question, I guess. Um, I I don't think um, the the uh, the uh, attempt to try to rehabilitate himself politically within the party. Look, I, I'm not suggesting he's going to jail or the the, the whole notion of the. Uh, uh, you know, of of having uh, you know a fair legal hearing. This isn't a legal matter; it's a political matter, and people should have, uh, he and he, among others, should have understood that from the beginning. Uh, that indeed he is subject to a, if people in politics in positions of prominence are subject to different standards than those going before the uh, the justice system as to whether or not they're going to be incarcerated. Um, and uh, three weeks on, he's now starting to put together an act. I'm, I'm not sure if he's just filling around. It may be some of his charges are actually true. 
But um, it, in terms of his political career, I think it's pretty much too late. I noted last night in the debate that a couple of the candidates said that should he be able to rehabilitate himself, he would be allowed to run again in his constituency, knowing full well that he's not going to be able to rehabilitate himself, certainly not between now and uh, June the 7th. So um, a lot of this is moot, but he's still, he's good, he's good copy, uh, and the media certainly are into, are into it. And, you know, craziness in this era of, uh, of reality, uh, reality television certainly, uh, certainly gets, gets, you, gets you on the air in, in one form or another. Uh, I, I think um, his, his days and position of political prominence are over. One political pundit uh, tweeted the other day that uh, listening to him now, is, uh, he says, I haven't heard a political speech like that about trying to resurrect a career since Mark Anthony's speech after Julius Caesar got stabbed. Yeah, well. uh, and then, uh, there's a similarity there that I think is, is well noted by those that are watching what's happening here. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, frankly, the conservatives should rethink. This was somebody, remember, who was never in a, recognized in a position of prominence when he was a federal MP. Um, I gather there were stories. I mean, the fact that there's rumors about people doesn't necessarily mean they're true. But I've chatted with people since, since this all came out, the fact that there were other stories about him in the old days, um, that indeed this is somebody who, frankly, should have never never reached the heights that he was able to reach within the Conservative Party. And uh, however it all comes out on June 7th, um, I think the Conservative Party is better off for the fact that he's no longer leading them. One of the stories I saw in, in, in one of the newspapers this morning uh, suggested that the Ontario legislature resumes their sitting next week, and apparently he's being encouraged by some of his supporters, and he still does have some supporters, uh, to take his rightful position as the opposition leader in the legislature. I, I, I can't see that happening. Yeah, I, look, he may show up in Queen's Park. I, I think he truly does want to rehabilitate himself. I understand that. Sure. And he may feel that he's been dealt with unfairly, and maybe he has been dealt with unfairly. Um, that having been said, uh, it's a little late in the day now to start uh, making some of the charges that he's making now. He was in a, if, if in fact there was, it looks like there were subterranean things that I'm not aware of that were going on in the Conservative Party um, that he should have known about if he was if he was leader. And the fact that he had lost control of what was going on, maybe he's responsible for some of them. For all I know, but the fact that he has lost control of them again underscores why, in fact, he it was not in the party's interest to to have him at the helm. Um, but uh, I, all he's going to do is, is create a scene that will only hurt the party should he do that. He may show up. He's still the elected member from his constituency. Mm-hmm. He may show up um, and, uh, again, an attempt to try to normalize what seems to be the situation. I'm not sure what has happened with regard to whether there's been a nomination in that constituency. My hunch is there hasn't been. So in theory, he, is, you know, he could still contest it, and if he had enough popular support among residents of Barry, uh, may, perhaps he could run again. The problem is that um, some of the leading uh, candidates for the nomination, uh, certainly including Mulroney and Elliott, have suggested they wouldn't sign and approve his nomination. So that creates a problem, too. Uh, it may not be over. He, he certainly is in a position to create more mud and uh, disarray within the party. And to a certain extent, I guess he's already doing that with these interviews. Uh, I do not think at the end of the day he's going to end up looking good. And to the extent he pushes it, I think it just harms the party. There was another revelation, because I, I, I do want to get into the debate, but in the interview last night on Global that just caught me off guard. Uh, when uh, Carolyn Jarvis, who was doing the interview for Global, uh, asked him, when did you find out that this story was going to break, that CTV was going to do this? And he said just hours before that, mm-hmm. uh, mid-afternoon, I guess, so that you know that was going to come out that evening. Uh, and then she said, but we have uh, been told that some of your staff knew about this four or five days before that. And he says, yeah, I found that out after the fact. And they didn't tell him. 
They didn't tell their leader that this story was coming out, a story of this magnitude that could undermine his leadership. And that begs the question, are they incompetent, or was this part of an overall scheme to just get this guy out of there? Well, that, that sort of tends to feed the, uh, the, insider, the insider part of it. Part of the reason why I thought that he really was doomed that night um, it was partly the way he sort of fled from the press questions, but also the fact that he couldn't convince his own principal staff that, in fact, he was innocent. If he couldn't convince them of his inner innocence, the fact that he could then go on to convince others that were less connected to him. Yeah, the very, the very moment that he was standing up there saying, I'm going to stay on and, and, and fight this, they resigned. Yeah, they uh, sent a tweet out that, at the exact same moment. Maybe maybe there is an inside element, but again, if there's an inside element, they perhaps know a whole lot of other things because there are other shoes that have been dropping, particularly with regard to uh, nefarious party things, including you know the nominations and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, there may be a whole lot of muck out there. I wouldn't be surprised if there was. I don't know about it, but um, I, I don't think that the mishandling this was a unique event in his political leadership. I think, in fact, there were probably a whole lot of other things that were going on, and if in fact the uh, the the staff people were some of whom have now attached themselves to other candidates uh, for the leadership that if they were involved in this they they perhaps knew uh, about a whole lot of other things that, are, that were going on in the party that they've just chosen discreetly not to uh, not to make public yet all right well as you mentioned uh, the other stream here is that there is a leadership race going on and uh, the four particulars that are involved in this had their first debate yesterday uh, I, I'm trying to think of an overall line that would encapsulate what I heard from uh, from the candidates, uh, and it's I guess uh, it, there was a pining for the good old days of ultra right conservatism. Uh, you know, let's 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 review the sex ed curriculum. You know, let's roll back the wage increases. Let's you know, on and on it goes. I mean, it sounded like common sense revolution part two. Yeah, there was a rightward drift um, more than I was expecting. Uh, they, they were f- pretty careful not to really directly attack each other, and I think that was good from their point of view. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, Tanya Allen, or Granick Allen, I guess is the name she uses, um, has introduced something else. Uh, she's certainly not a plausible candidate for the party. I mean, that would be the real salvation for uh, Kathleen Wynne, should she actually end up uh, as, as the party leader. Um, but she has sort of introduced something into the, the discussion, which is causing the the leading candidates to sort of move rightward is certainly to be wary of the rightward flank because they're not sure of what the inclinations are going to be of, of many of the people who are, are within the party membership. In, in terms of the June election, it's not in the party's interest to be making these gestures to the right. Um, but on the certainly the carbon tax, they're now all sort of shifting away from that position, which had been endorsed and was in the party platform, and which is really um, the key to a lot of the spending. The revenue from that is supposed to be uh, to allow the party to do some of the other things that are in the party platform. Uh, but she, she challenged that, then Ford, dropped, then Ford questioned the uh, carbon tax, and now they all have. Um, that indeed, they, they are not quest- they're not going to undo the, um, the um, minimum wage. doesn't sound like they're going to undo the changes to um, the, the, uh, the pharmacare policy for younger people. But that in, ge- in general, the discussion seemed to be who could sort of move as close to the right without actually endorsing uh, Granick Allen's positions as, as possible. The one, I- the only issue I could really detect. There's certainly lots of difference in style uh, among the candidates, mm-hmm. but the one issue that I could detect any difference at all was the fact that Carol, uh, Carolyn Mulroney would not uh, re- re- um, accept the idea of changing the the sex education um, platform that had been uh, established. Whereas the other uh, other people were at least making gestures in that direction, including Elliot. 
and of trying to appeal to that that, that right wing base in situations like this. But you know, there's a, a an interesting twist about this whole uh, carbon tax thing. And Andrew Corn wrote a piece about it uh, earlier this week, Barry. I'm sure you read that he said the carbon tax is a federal initiative. And and what was going on and what is going on right now is the Fed said the provinces have the option of developing their own plan if they don't like ours. So in if this if the conservatives win this and they say no carbon tax, there will still be a carbon tax. But the problem is, is they're writing off the revenue that's going to come from it because it's not going to come to them if they don't buy into the plan. Yeah, it's one thing to talk about this. Again, the, the problem right now on this issue and perhaps others as well, but especially on this issue, is that in fact right now they are playing to their their core voters, the people that are on the right right wing side of the uh, Ontario electorate. Once we get past the leadership determination in uh, in a few weeks. Uh, all of a sudden they're going to be thinking about the Ontario electorate. And I think a lot of people, uh, right now I think they're saying things with their fingers crossed, hoping that, in fact, they don't offend themselves too much on the political right, knowing that at least for the leading candidates, this may not apply to Allen, maybe not even to Ford, but that for the other candidates, that in fact they're going to have to pivot to the normal electorate, the electorate that's going to determine who's going to actually win the election come, uh, come June. And my hunch is that um, we're going to see... Gradually, they're not going to openly say they're, they're challenging the things they said before, but I think they're going to all of a sudden recognize that there's certain realities that they can no longer honor, and that what you point out with regard to federal jurisdiction over the carbon tax is one of them. Well, and Ford's, you know, bombast that, you know, I'm gonna, if, if Trudeau tries to do this, just watch me. Yeah. He can't stop it. He can't do anything about it. But what he can do is write off that $4 billion. And, and Caroline Mulroney's answer to that is, well, we'll find efficiencies. If you read the platform, they've already said we need that $4 billion. And then on top of that, we're going to find another $6 billion in quote-unquote efficiencies. So they're essentially saying, it's going to have to be $10 billion in efficiencies to try to balance the books. Good luck with that. Uh, look, at the end of the day, I don't think Ford is going to be the winner, uh, much to the chagrin of the liberals. I, I think that, the, the, apart from Allen, who, I, again, I really don't take too seriously as, as a prospect for winning, uh, that, in fact, I think the liberals' hope, hopes are that, that Ford somehow might become the, uh, the leader, in which case they, they could be very much be back in the game. Uh, but at the moment, uh, the, the, there is a uh, just a time. It's time for change in Ontario, and that's quite understandable when a party's been in power for 15 years that people are ready for something a little bit different. Uh, so we certainly see that the popularity levels of the uh, of the Premier Kathleen Wynne are are very low. I don't think that's likely to change. The Liberal campaign will be geared very much on trying to throw as much mud and attack the whoever the Conservative leader as possible. Should it be somebody like Ford? it becomes a lot more plausible that they can, can gain traction with that. Um, if it's more likely to be Elliot, and, and to me the real contest is really between Elliot and Mulroney, uh, the, and each of them has their, their strengths potentially as, you know, as, as the candidate, but um, it should it be Mulroney or, um, or Elliot, I think the Liberal task, and the NDP task for that matter, is going to be much more challenging. Are there actually two campaigns going on here, Barry? One for the leadership where they want to appeal to that hard right, that solid right with with the, the sex ed discussion and some of these other things, uh, and then maybe a more gentle, you know, edging toward the middle uh, when it actually comes to the, to the election itself? Well, yeah, well, I think for Mulroney and Elliott, they understand that after March 10th, it, it, it's no longer a matter of pleasing the people on the far right. It's a matter of appealing to the general electorate, knowing that as, as best I could, you know, the polling has been pretty limited and a little bit all over the place, but as best I understand, the conservatives are, are ahead. Um, whether it's by 10 points or 20 points or whatever, I'm not sure. And I don't think it'll be that big a lead at the end of the day, the 20 points. Nonetheless, the conservatives are ahead. And having been through the experience of 
losing four elections and losing three of them that were very winnable in one way or another. Uh, they should be very mindful of the fact of not stepping in the cow patties too, too deliberately and, and making mistakes. And I think both um, Elliot and Mulroney, or at least the people around Mulroney advising her, are aware of the fact that they've got, after March 10th, they've got to think about, about winning that electorate and not to say too, too much that's going to come back and haunt them in the election. Uh, the Conservatives very much have a chance. They've got a leg up on everybody else in terms of the likely campaign to follow in, coming in June, um, and that indeed they do not want to antagonize the mainstream electorate by, by appealing to the, 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 the Christian Conservatives, or the, the people that seem to be behind uh, Granick Allen. Rob Ford, uh, Rob Ford uh, Doug Ford is Doug Ford, we know that. Christine Elliott is the, the most experienced of the three main candidates there. Uh, there was some concern about uh, about Caroline Mulroney. The media that she had done on, since she made her announcement official, anyway, Barry, she appeared tentative and unsure of herself with cliched answers. Uh, what did you see yesterday? Was there an improvement there? Uh, look, she's cautious. Uh, she's less. I mean, to me, the choice is really, as I mentioned a minute ago, Elliot versus her. Elliot's experience. Elliot is not likely to make fundamental mistakes that may come up, because once you're in a campaign, you're, all sorts of questions are coming at you, and all sorts of new situations are coming at you. Um, and uh, the idea of sort of knowing, having sort of the calm and the experience to be able to handle these things is critical. I don't know about uh, Carolyn Mulroney. She's, she's very telegenic. She seems to have a certain pizzazz. She has name recognition, without which she wouldn't be in this at all. At least, certainly not in the, uh, the uh, position of contesting the leadership without ever having run for, for office at all. Uh, and there's a lot, apparently a lot of money. There are certainly people that are Conservative Party backers who think that she is the ticket. She may very well catch on. She may very well, um, she has a pizzazz that Elliot doesn't have, um, and that may be critical. Um, if, if it were a situation where the Conservatives were behind in the polls, I would think that Mulroney might be the smarter bet, because in fact she could potentially, I don't think she's done it yet, but she could potentially, as a younger person new to the, the, uh, the process, could excite people. The fact that the Conservatives, as best we can judge by the limited polls, are ahead and for that reason, in a strategic sense, to me, Elliot really is the safer bet, even though Carolyn Mulroney, will, she's running in a safe riding in New York Simcoe. She will certainly add a fair bit to the conservative team. She certainly has a future in the conservative party provincially, maybe more than that. Uh, but that, indeed, the, the notion of what could go wrong in a, in a campaign, given that the conservatives have blown leads or at least competitive situations, in, in three elections past, going back to, to John Tory and then with Hudak, in different ways, just because of, of flubs they make. I, I don't think Elliot is as likely to make mistakes in, in mid-campaign in the way an inexperienced person like Mulroney might. And it's for that reason that, to me, Elliot strategically is the smarter play. Um, again, if the Conservatives were behind, it may be that Mulroney can sort of catch fire in a way that is yet to be determined, but we've seen it with Justin Trudeau. Hell, we saw it with his father 50 years ago. Uh, you know, there are times where a, pol a new politician with a different style, uh, she certainly has the potential for an, a more exciting style than, than Elliot does, that somebody like that could very much uh, catch fire with the Ontario electorate and do very well. But the fact that the Conservatives seem to be ahead to begin with means that, to me, the greater risk is going with Mulroney rather than Elliott. As for Ford, um, he, will, he certainly will have his constituency. I don't know how well-known he really is beyond the greater Toronto area. Um, it sounds like he was, last night he was committing to running in the, uh, in the provincial election. I had thought he, was, he had previously talked about running for mayor, um, but uh, mayor of Toronto. Uh, but uh, these are sort of all the, the factors that the Conservatives, I guess, have to sort of filter out. But to me, the contest is going to be Mulroney and Elliott, and it's just this, uh, experience versus potential excitement. One more debate uh, toward the end of the month. We'll see how that rolls out. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks for this today, Barry. Bye for now.
Barry Kay, of course, political science professor at Wilford Loria University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The government uh, has been criticized, the federal government, that is, for you know not keeping up on a lot of campaign promises they made uh, during the election a couple of years ago. Uh, one of the ones that they're really trying to push for, though, is the legalization of marijuana. And uh, finally, they got that through the, the commons. However, it stalled in the Senate. And the government's uh, guideline that considered that they were probably going to get this thing done by the summertime of this year, doesn't look like it's going to happen. Maybe late summer, maybe not even then. Tim Harper writes about it. Uh, of course, he is the uh, national affairs columnist uh, in the Toronto Star. Politics, not independence, leading to the Senate delay. Uh, Tim joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to explain. How are you doing this morning, Tim? I'm good, Bill. How are you? Good, good. Listen, it's not unusual for uh, things to get held up in, in either the Commons or in the Senate for partisan reasons, but there's uh, a little political hanky-panky going on here, it looks like. Well, I suspect there is, and uh, I, I talked to people yesterday who uh, also suspect there is. Look, um, you know, first, the bad news for you, Bill, if you were uh, getting ready to sit in your backyard and, and smoke legalized weed in July uh, or August, I don't think it's going to, well, it's definitely gonna, not going to happen in July. So uh, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. And the uh, the reasons behind it is that this Senate, now as it's constituted, as we know, is not only... Uh, far more independent uh, than it used to be uh, under the uh, the overhaul that Justin Trudeau um, brought in. But uh, independence doesn't mean there's not politics being played. And clearly, uh, the Conservatives, uh, and there's 33 Conservative senators, were doing everything they could to, uh, to put the brakes on this uh, legislation, uh, slow it down under the guise of, um, uh, you know, doing their second uh, sober thought uh, Raw, uh, they've raised a, a number of concerns about a bill that's uh, passed the Senate. Uh, sorry, passed the House last year, and has been sitting in the Senate uh, wait, awaiting approval since I believe November twenty eighth of last year. So um, there's a lot of posturing going on, and uh, a lot of concerns that are being raised that have already been dealt with. And uh, uh, you know, it, it's very very late in the game for them to be talking uh, about some of the issues that they that they've raised, so one can only surmise that they are trying to push this further, as far down the road as they can. Well, in, in the piece you wrote today that's in the Star, Tim, I mean, you talked, for instance, about some of the talking points that uh, the leader, the conservative leader in the Senate, Larry Smith's talked about. Larry, of course, is the former CFL commissioner. Yep. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> He's, I mean, he's talking about things like health issues, the legal age, impaired driving, uh, you know, people operating machinery after smoking a joint. This is yesterday's news. I mean, this is the stuff that they were debating 10 years ago. Uh, yeah, and it's also, uh, uh, these are also issues that were dealt with in committee hearings in the House of Commons. Uh, so, sure, I mean, we now have, uh, you, you check the, well, I actually don't check the, the Senate transcripts. I can't believe what I almost just said, but I had to check the Senate transcript. <laughs> they are um, talking about uh, minimum age, um, the uh, strength of the THC in legalized uh, cannabis. They're talking about uh, offshore tax havens uh, being used to invest in the industry here. Uh, they, they're, they're throwing everything at the wall that they possibly can. Uh, the age limit has, has been dealt with. The, the, as you know, this has been not an easy task for the, the, the provinces and municipalities, uh, police forces at all, to get uh, this on track for a, uh, a July rollout. A lot of this work has been done and it's been debated at the federal level and the provincial level, and now the, the Senate is uh, 
in. It's acting like none of this has ever been done, and that uh, they are the they, they are the guardians of uh, of public health here, and uh, they are going back over well tilled territory. Not that this would ever happen in, in federal politics. That you know that people might just you know play the partisan card here, but but you make an interesting distinction, and I think it's one that we needed to be reminded of. Is uh, we'll get to the independent senators in a second, but the conservative senators in the caucus, they are still part of the the conservative caucus in Ottawa. Right. Uh, which means that Andrew Scheer still has a lot of, of swing over what they're doing. And and there's a suggestion, and you talk about it in your piece today, that what Scheer is trying to do here is rag the puck here so that the implementation of this thing may drag out towards the next federal election campaign. Yeah, and inevitably there's going to be uh, problems. This is a very, very complicated undertaking. Uh, you know, I, you won't find anybody in the government that's going to say that this is going to go through... Uh, um, with, without uh, problems or blemishes, you you, you will inevitably um, have some outlets that uh, are not properly stocked, for example. Or uh, I, I think you could probably bet that there will be some impaired driving uh, uh, under the influence of cannabis uh, uh, incident that will, will will again raise the question of impaired driving in public education. There, there's there's no end of potential problems as this thing rolls out. Uh, if the Conservatives can push it further down the road and some of these problems are still there uh, as we turn the page into an election year, I mean, I think it's a long shot, but I think this is what they're trying to do, is they're trying to uh, set up a timeline and a scenario whereby there will be enough problems that they can suggest that the the Liberals are just incompetent when it came to rolling this out and and, and they, they moved too fast and they didn't think through the public health or, or, or uh, the effects on um, uh, kids uh, or that most of it is still being um, bought through the black market. There'll be all kinds of arguments that they'll make in order to try to show that the liberals uh, that just didn't do this properly. And, and the best way for that to happen, of course, for them is to, is to drag it out as, as long as they can. <laughs> I love the phrase, though, because I've heard them do this. I've been watching the news clips from the Hill. Uh, where they say, well, the liberals are rushing this legislation. It's been two years, Tim. Oh, man, this is a, uh, this is a 2015 uh, uh, election pledge. There was a committee of ministers set up in, uh, I believe, uh, late 2016. They introduced the legislation in April of 2017. Uh, they passed it, uh, comments passed it in uh, uh, November of last year. Uh, this a campaign promise that the Liberals are actually trying to keep and want to keep, and and the Conservatives in the Senate are, are criticizing them for for keeping an election promise, which by the way is you know if you, if you believe the polls, is a fairly popular um, uh, initiative, particularly among a younger uh, cohort that the, the the Conservatives desperately need to bring into their tent. It looks to me, and this is an opinion, but it looks to me. That you know, when they are talking about you know protecting your children and your families against the scourge, they're they're playing to the a base that would vote for them anyways. I don't see how this, in any way, shape, or form, uh, uh, extends their base or brings new voters uh, into uh, Andrew Shear's party or or as younger people, millennials, looking at the conservatives as a possibility. So. Um, they appear to be just merely playing to their base by by dragging this out and raising these concerns. But isn't that part of the conundrum that Andrew Scheer is facing? And you, you talked about this ever since he assumed the leadership last year, or last summer now, Tim, is that he's he's torn now. Do I stay to that base that probably got me the leadership, or do I try to, you know, 
broaden the tent, and uh, he seems he seems very reticent to try to to do the latter. I, I guess because he's fearful of the pushback he's going to get. Well, yeah, but he has he had options here. I I, I started this column yesterday on a, on a different tack. Their um, their parliamentary strategy is a, is a bit of a head scratcher. Andrew uh, uh, Shear, they they went after ethics on, on Bill Morneau and the, and the Prime Minister on the Aga Khan trip. Um, by the way, both legitimate issues, uh, but they just never stopped. Day after day after day in in the House, there were the same questions met by the same Teflon message track uh, across the aisle, and, and they uh, effectively got themselves out of the news cycle because there was nothing new. The same questions were being deflected with the same answers, and, and they just did it day after day after day. Then, um, you know, lo and behold, they pivoted this week, and last weekend, they, they uh, on social media, a number of their uh, top critics went after the Justice Minister, Jody Wilson-Raybould, for her tweet on the Colton Bushy uh, verdict, uh, which it was a legitimate issue. So you wait for the House uh, 215 on Monday, and the Conservatives are going to pounce on ministers who were uh, questioning a jury verdict, right? No, no, they, they went on some tweet from uh, uh, Jerry Butts, Trudeau's uh, uh, principal advisor on... Um, something to do with people kind and so on. It was a, it was the strangest uh, um, return uh, from a weekend uh, to a question period that I've seen. So uh, the point I'm making is I, I don't know where, really where they're going uh, on on their parliamentary strategy, uh, what they're trying to do, who they're trying to lure. But this, to my mind, is a, is a case of um, preaching to the uh, to the converted. Now let's go back to the old days before uh, Justin Trudeau made the decision to expel the uh, the liberal senators from the caucus, and now that I sit as independents, in the old days he could do what most prime ministers did: was he would just simply whip the senators and say, "You got to get this thing through." Uh, now, when he made that decision, and all of a sudden these guys were orphaned, uh, you you wrote about that at the time, Tim, that there was yeah. a lot of animosity, and they were kind of sitting there holding their breath, saying, "Well, just wait and see how long it takes you to get your legislation through." Now, are they over that? Well, I, look, uh, I went back and, and checked this because I thought it might come up because I, I, I can't keep track of the Senate without a scorecard, but there are 41 in, uh, independent senators. Uh, Twelve still call themselves independent liberals. Five are non-affiliated. Anyway, none of these people, uh, uh, none of these senators are, are beholden to any government orders, although the independent uh, senators, by and large, uh, have done the government's bidding. In this case, though, you had the government leader, uh, Peter Harder, threatening uh, closure time allocations that shut down the debate because he and uh, Tony Dean, who sponsored the bill, another independent senator, believed that the, the conservatives were um, were uh, ragging the puck intentionally. And, you know, let's get on with this because there's no need to drag this out. But he couldn't get the support to do it because the independent senators wouldn't back him on this because they are, they believe their label. They are independent senators and they want their time to deal with this. The the, the weird thing about pushing this back to June is essentially because of the uh, parliamentary schedule and the and the, um, the, the uh, Senate is uh, uh, off for uh, much of March, they're really only getting three extra days uh, to debate it in the Senate. Uh, there'll be a lot of committee work done. But uh, they're going to pass second reading uh, uh, by uh, May. Uh, sorry, by March. There'll be committee hearings that will wrap up by the end of May, and they will vote on it uh, uh, and pass it probably with amendments on June seventh. So they bought themselves a, a very little bit more time. 
but they do look like they are pushing back and they are independent and they're not being told what to do. It, it just seems so bizarre that, that stuff like this is going on. Uh, and it's it's the process. But as you wrote in the piece today, uh, if the Senate finally does pass this and, and they do follow the time frame that you just outlined, they're probably going to do it with amendments, which means that by law it's got to go back to the Commons again. Right. And then these amendments could be dealt with in a day or they may not, depending what the amendments are. There's, there's likely to be at least two that I, I can uh, uh, that I was I told about. One that the government will probably very easily accept is the uh, uh, some move on uh, indigenous education, uh, public health, bringing you know, more indigenous engagement into the into the rollout. Um, there's concern about um, mental health ed- education in remote communities and um, uh, addiction treatment uh, facilities in remote communities, uh, I would imagine that the, 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 the government would accept that uh, fairly easily. That could be worked out fairly quickly. Uh, I, I suspect there's going to be some kind of amendment coming back on the, on the legal age, though, and I, I, don't, uh, I, I don't think the government's going to move on that. They, they, recommend, they set the minimum at 18. They left it with the provinces. Most of the provinces actually have gone a, a year up to uh, minimum age of 19, like Ontario has. Um, I expect probably the government will send that back, at which point you would expect the Senate to just fold their tent and say, okay, that's fine, um, we accept that. But we don't know. And the other, uh, the other thing on timing is that the government's already told the Senate that after royal assent, in other words, when the Senate approves it, they're going to need 8 to 12 weeks to get everything together to roll this out properly. And, and my uh, past experience says that if, it's eight to twelve weeks. Bet on the twelve. Uh, maybe take a, a, a an over on the twelve. Uh, and the other thing they don't want to do that puts them around Labor Day. I don't think they like the optics of um, kids going back to school on the day that marijuana has become legal. It's just you know they think they'd like to avoid that. So if I was a betting man, I would probably say mid September at the earliest. But you know we'll see. Well, what about the time frame? Because when they rise for the summer as a rule. I mean, if, if the Senate drags this out long enough, that's not going to go back to the House uh, af- until after that, and it's just going to sit in the docket until after Labor Day. Well, the, the House can extend, and, and if it goes back... Would they, just for what piece like uh, legislation like this? Yeah, sure, they could. If the if, if government wants that uh, uh, passed, uh, they could, but I don't think they'll have to, because on June 7th, the, uh, both chambers will still be sitting... Um, it's going to be the you know uh, getting everything together after the royal assent, um, and you know everybody's putting a happy face on this bill. That okay, we've, we've got some certainty, and and it uh, Bill Blair wouldn't say that uh, he was upset. He's the point man on on this, uh, but he clearly was ready uh, to rock a bit earlier. I think the government is. I think Canadians are ready, but you know so we're talking. Uh, a number of weeks uh, later, it it probably isn't going to cost the, the conservatives anything if it's seen that way. But if they do start playing this game of ping pong back and forth between the House uh, and the uh, and the Senate on amendments, um, I, I think the, the conservatives could do themselves some damage. Could be. Well, just another example of how government moves at glacial speed up in Ottawa. Yeah. Great piece. Uh, Check it out in the start today. Tim, have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon, I hope. You too, Bill. Thanks for calling. Take care. Tim Harper, of course, National Affairs columnist with the Toronto Star. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.